Welcome to Presence Church's Sermon of the Week. We are so excited to share this powerful word with you. Uh, this, has been a, this has been a rather interesting week for me personally. It's actually been about two weeks of, of really interesting. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we were driving here this morning, and we, you know, we were following, of course, like everybody, the mapping software on your phone. And so we came down from Los Angeles County, where we live. And uh, my wife, Beth, by the way, is here on the front row. So we came down from, uh, from Los Angeles, and we got off at Bristol and kind of came down to the gas station over there and then hooked over onto this street. And I said, you know, I think we're going to the site of the old Newport Vineyard. And she goes, no, no, that can't be right. And I said, no, no, I'm pretty sure it is. And then we pulled into the parking lot. And, you know, one of the words that's on the wind right now, it's, it's a word that's in the land. And you may not have heard it, but consider yourself as now having heard it or about to anyway is that um, you need to you need to dig a well and you need to you need to camp out over the well that you've dug in the book of Genesis which I'm not preaching from this morning so I'm not going to go there because if I do I'll overshoot the, the you know the aircraft carrier deck and the plane will land up in the ocean so I've been warned that I need to end this on time so I've got to do something to corral the message but um, Anyway, one of the words that's out there is about digging wells and, and camping out on them. And in the 25th and 6th chapters of Genesis, we have the story of Isaac. And Isaac was a man who dug many wells. And some were dry holes, as they call them in the well digging business. And some of them were uh, wells where they found some water. And there were some that were artesian wells that sprung up with, with force and life. Well... You know, Southern California is itself um, a, a spiritual well. I mean, the whole of Southern California. You may not know the history of California's uh, revivalism. And again, that could be its own sermon. But um, there is this little thing called Azusa Street. And that came out of Southern California. What you might not know is that three days ago was the 9th of April. Today's the, if I've got my dates right, the, the 11th. So two days ago, two days ago was the 9th of April. That's the day 115 years ago that the Azusa Street Revival broke out. And, uh, you know, since then, there have been other moves of God in Southern California. One of the biggest and most notable occurred just up the freeway here about one mile, literally about one mile right by South Coast Plaza. It was called Calvary Chapel. Um, Calvary Chapel's seen its better days at this point. It's still a good movement of churches, but they don't have the dynamism and power that they had in the 1970s. But back then, right there in a soybean field, well, now it's turned into industrial buildings, uh, right there in the soybean field, uh, Chuck Smith was leading what everyone around here called BC for Big Calvary, not before Christ. And B.C. was the mothership of a whole confederation of churches, a movement, if you will. And, uh, and a mere 20 million people got saved out of that outpouring that was headquartered one mile away from here. Well, as, as that movement was kind of hitting its, hitting its apogee and starting to go into decline, 
just up the freeway here about, I don't know, maybe what is it, Van, 15 miles? 15 miles from here up the 55 freeway, when it transitions to the 91, you get out there and Imperial Highway is one of the main off-ramps there. If you look on the right side of Imperial Highway, there's a high school called Canyon High School. You can see it from the freeway. And back in the late 70s and early 1980s, Canyon High School was the center of the vineyard movement, which John Wimber came to be the head of. He didn't found it, but it was given to him very early on, and he led it af after that. And I worked for John in those early years when the movement grew to about 200 churches. And the vineyard movement became, you may not know this, but the vineyard movement became the headwaters of a whole series of rivers that are still flowing. One of them is called Bethel. Bill Johnson says that he got what he got from a John Wimber meeting. You may not know that. Randy Clark came out of the Vineyard Movement. I was on the team that went to Randy's church and blew it up when he was a little Baptist pastor in Southern Illinois. I didn't lead that team. I was too young in those days, but, but I was there. I, I'm an eyewitness to these things. I'm not just telling you stories that I read in a book. There are others that came out of that movement. Mike Bickle was profoundly affected. The entire Toronto awakening came out of the Vineyard Movement. By the way, Randy Clark brought that to Toronto. So there's a whole history, and so there's a well 15 miles up the freeway that way. But what you may not know and so this goes back to my comment to my wife as we drove up today, is that right here on this property, in this building, and that one over there, right, right there, that one, this was the Newport Beach Vineyard for years. And back in the day, you know, every, every battle group, you're in the Navy, every battle group, there's, there's the main ship, and then it's got all the support vessels, well, if that one was the aircraft carrier, this was a guided missile cruiser right here. This was like the second ship in the battle group. John McClure pastored here. One of my friends, several good friends were on staff here, but one very good friend uh, came and worked here. That church eventually didn't survive all of the this and that that goes on in the world. Um, but here you guys are, and you're camped out on a well. You may not realize that, but maybe there's destiny in that. Yeah, maybe there's some destiny in that. Maybe it's not accidental that you're here, that you're in this church, that you're listening to me two days after Pentecost. Or excuse me, wrong, wrong thing. Two days after Azusa Street 115 years ago. There we go. Get my, get my merds wixed. Why would God let you camp out on a well? You know, Isaac reopened some of the wells that his father, Abraham, had dug. Because the Philistines had filled them with dirt and with rocks. Even to this day, we use the language of Philistine to mean somebody that's, I don't know, uncouth opposed to the things of God. But Isaac unstopped the wells. He reopened wells. 
Just keep that in your mind as we look at the scripture. If you've got a Bible, I hope you do. Bible apps are nice, but they're just not all that they really should be. I'll tell you one reason you want to have a real Bible, because the day is coming soon when they're going to change the source code on the Bibles that are being printed. And they're going to make them say what they want them to say to fit the prevailing political orthodoxy of the nation. And at that point in time, your app will read according to what is orthodox because it will have been altered. And so you better have a few hard copy printed analog paper Bibles because you'll want them. And scripture says the day is coming when there'll be a famine for the word of God. That's going to be our form of that famine of the word of God. Anyway, if you're using one of these to look at the Word of God, <laughs> please flick the little switch so it's, uh, the ringer is off, or else put it in flight mode. All right, and we're looking at uh, Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, um, and we're going to be starting in verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth... He went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the brother of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father, and they followed him, and he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among the people. Well, it's 2021, and uh, the news cycle being what it is, most of us can't remember what happened last week. But about seven years ago, a movie was released in the United States, and it had the, uh, had the title, The Son of God, or Son of God. I don't think it even had the the in it. It was just called Son of God. And as you might guess, it was about Jesus. Um, but unlike Mel Gibson's more famous movie, The Passion of the Christ, which really focused on kind of the last week of Jesus' life and the torture and execution of Jesus, Son of God is really about the life and times of Jesus. It's a, it's a much broader sweep of, of who he was and how he lived and ministered. And early in the movie, there's a scene in which he's walking down the beach by the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you've never been to Israel, you don't know the Holy Land at all. The Sea of Galilee is a, is a it's an inland contained body of water. It's technically a lake. Um, but anyway, it's not that big. You can see across it most days unless it's you know, low visibility. 
But anyway, in this movie, Jesus comes walking along the beach at the Sea of Galilee, and he approaches Peter, who's cleaning uh, the nets of his fishing boat, which is the story that we've, that we've just read. And um, I don't know why these things always seem to have... Uh, Lance Wallnow made a comment about this at a meeting we were in last night. They always seem to have either a, an Australian or a New Zealand accent, and sometimes British. <laughs> but it's always one of them, right? So um, Jesus, who would have been speaking Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek, he walks up, and in a very British accent, he says, Peter, follow me. And Peter, in like manner, says, Master, what are we going to do? And Jesus says, we are going to change the world. Just like that. Well, it took Hollywood to capture a theme which is actually hidden in plain view in, in this passage, but I don't know that we often stop to consider it. Peter's a fisherman. He's, he's running a fishing business. It's a commercial fishing business. I'm sure he probably has a kiosk on the beach and people can come buy fresh fish, but we actually know from history and archaeology that Peter was the front end of a supply chain that Mary Magdalene's family ran out of Magdala, and all the fish that they were catching, they brought there for processing. There's a fish processing tower that's been uncovered in Magdala. And so this is a commercial operation. Peter's, Peter's got a big scale thing going on here. This isn't just uh, you know, me and my fishing pole trying to manage a subsistence. And um, <clears throat> when Jesus called Peter, he didn't add, call him to add new customers. And he also didn't call him merely to grow a large church, even though that's a desirable outcome. That's not really the focus of the calling. Jesus hadn't come to start another empire. He came to do something bigger than all of that. He came to change the world. That's what he came to do. And the scripture even suggests this because it says that once John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He, he'd been down in the south. He'd been down near Jerusalem. He'd been down near the Dead Sea. He'd been down near Jericho. And he, he goes to the north. And it's, you know, it's, it's a bit of a journey. I mean, in the day when you didn't have superhighways and modern cars, when you didn't have air travel or high-speed rails, it's about 250 miles. It would take you a few days to make that journey. So withdrawal is probably the right word. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a long journey of sorts. And when he, when he returns from that part of the world to his own home country, we know that he was called Jesus the Nazarene because he was uh, raised in Nazareth. But what he does is he, if you will, breaks camp and he moves from Nazareth now to this little seaside town called Capernaum. He, he could have been in Orange County, living by the beach. Jesus had you know, good taste that way. He, he knew what it was to, I guess, buy waterfront property. But... Anyway, so he goes and lives by this town called Capernaum, and it says it's in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. That means nothing to us because, because we don't think about these things. But, but to the Jews, this was a huge deal. This was the, the patrimony. It was the, the, the land that had been promised to these two tribes, and there was a word over these two tribes. It was about a 700-year-old word, but it was a word, and the word had been given by none other than the major league prophet Isaiah. You know, today we like to talk about our major league prophets. Listen, they're all in the minor leagues, maybe below that. They might even, they may not even be single A league compared to Isaiah. 
Isaiah is the longest prophetic book in the Bible. He's the one Jesus quotes the most. And this is what Isaiah said, that land of Zebulun and Naphtali to the north, the way of the sea, the Amaris in Latin. And that's, by the way, what the Romans called the road that went right through that area, the Amaris. That way of the sea beyond the Jordan, meaning beyond where the Jordan even begins, because the Sea of Galilee is the headwaters of the Jordan River, speaking of headwaters. In the Galilee of the Gentiles, those people who have been dwelling in darkness, they will have seen a great light. The promise of God is always to bring a great light upon those who dwell in darkness. And when Jesus came, he came to fulfill that promise. 700 years they'd waited for it, but the time was now. That's why when Jesus preaches, he says, the time is now. No more of this waiting around. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, the light has dawned. How many of you know that America is a land in decline? How many of you know that the shadow of death is on our land? All you had to do was watch the riots last summer. All you have to do is watch the anger, the seething rage, the division in our country. All you need to do is hear the reinterpretation of our history. All you need to do is hear the hate that comes out of people's mouths to know that we are living in the land of the shadow of death. And God wants his light to shine on the shadow of death. And so from that time, Jesus began to preach. John was gone. And so now the Jesus revival could begin. I think we've had enough forerunners. They're good. We need them. But we're beyond the time of needing forerunners. It begins here. And so Jesus says, repent. The kingdom of heaven is breaking in upon you. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm bringing hope to the land of death. I'm shining light on the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. I'm fulfilling the word of prophecy. And so Jesus goes walking along the beach and he finds these two brothers. Well, when Jesus declared that he had come to change the world, it meant that he was launching a kingdom with new values, new beliefs, a, a distinct culture to it, a diff, distinct feel to it, something that would, well, stand against the prevailing norms of society. Church, are you ready to live contrary to the prevailing norms of society? Because if we talk about changing the world, I think what we're doing really is saying that we have been called to be a counterculture. A generation ago, a mile up the freeway, when the Jesus people emerged, when the hippies were all being born again, they were the counterculture. But now we, the church, are the counterculture because we are no longer the dominant culture. The memes have been taken over. The media is spewing things out. The politicians are saying things, and Christianity is going into eclipse. At the beginning of Easter week, two weeks ago, George Barna, the pollster, one of the most legit pollsters in the United States, by the way, many of these polls that you read, not to quote Donald Trump, are fake news. But George Barna does not put out fake news. And George Barna, on Monday of Easter week, released a poll in which it showed that now, in America today, 47% of Christians identify with the church. Excuse me, 47% of the population. 
the population. That means we're below half for the first time since such things have been tracked, ever. In fact, in 1999, I remember that year. Some of you might not over here. But in 1999, <laughs> wait for this, wait for this. In 1999, 70% of the people in the United States identified with a church. From 1999 to 2021, that's 22 years, that's a 23-point decline, except it hasn't been one percentage drop a year, which is about what that works out to be. It's been more like, that's where we are. And so we have been called to be the counterculture. Now, Peter, he was a fisherman. He's a commercial fisherman, but people of this kind, they are, well, they're blue collar. I mean, they, they might have big operations, but there's a particular way about those kind of people. We might even say Peter was something of a day laborer because he wasn't, he wasn't high, he didn't have a big enough fleet of ships that, you know, he's not working on the boat anymore. He's mending nets still. So he's working alongside of his brother, and he's got probably some others with him. He's got a business where he's partners with James and John, and so they've formed some sort of a, I'd be well, a partnership, some kind of a business alliance. But Peter's living a common life with no bright and shining future. He's a tradesman, and maybe in his mind he's thinking most of the time, it would be best just to keep my head down, not arouse the interest or suspicion of the Romans, just to pay my bills, come along, get along. But, you know, Jesus had arrived in Capernaum. That's what the scripture tells us. And Capernaum, we know from history, was a, was a small town. There's about 150 homes in it in the time of Jesus. And these homes, by the way, were not very big. Some of them are about the size of this block of seats right here. And so... Each home presumably would have had a mom and a dad, and so you would have had no birth control, you got a bunch of babies, we don't know how many that is, two, four, six, I don't know, whatever. But you've got, you've got a bunch of kids, so 150 homes, and we'll just hypothesize, if you've got four people in a family, that would be the modern American family, that's about 600 people living in Capernaum. Of course, if there's more babies, there's more people, maybe it's 1,200, maybe it's 1,500, but Capernaum is the size of a modern Orange County high school, just to kind of help you think about it and frame it. That's kind of what we're talking about. And so when a guy like Jesus shows up to town, he's an outsider and everybody's watching him and they're like, who is this guy anyway? Yeah, he came from Nazareth. Okay, well, why did he come here from Nazareth? People hang around their own hometowns. What's, what's up with that? So Peter's been, Peter's been living there by the sea. We know that his initial hometown was Bethsaida, but somewhere along the line, he too had moved just down the beach a couple miles from, from, his, uh, from his hometown of Bethsaida. He's now living in Capernaum. We know where his house is. You can go visit it if you go to Israel. But anyway, all these people in Capernaum, they're watching Jesus as he comes to town. And as they, you know, you just think of a, I don't know, think of a traditional Western. You're not from around these parts, are you, stranger? So everybody's watching him. Who is this guy? What is, what's he about anyway? And in particular, we're talking about Peter. But what I'm about to say about Peter applies to all of them because everybody's watching Jesus. Everybody's watching Jesus. Who is this guy that came from Nazareth? It's kind of strange that he's unmarried. 
He's a carpenter, seems to do pretty good work. Everybody likes him, gets along with kids pretty well. There's something about him, though. I can't quite put my finger on it. There's just something, something there. And, you know, Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John that he never did anything but what the Father showed him to do. So I can only suppose that the reason Jesus moved to Capernaum was that the Father told him, son, go to Capernaum. It wasn't just that Jesus liked the beach or fresh fish. It was that the Father had sent him to Capernaum. And so when he went to Capernaum, Jesus was a man on a mission. He was looking for something, and what he was looking for was Peter and Andrew and James and John and later Matthew. He's looking for disciples. He's going to call them, and he's going to launch his ministry out of Capernaum. I said at the beginning of this thing, it might be destiny that you're camped out on a well that was the number two church in the vineyard movement a generation ago, that you're one mile down the freeway from the headquarters of the global revival called the Jesus people, and you're 15 miles down the freeway from the vineyard's flagship church, or what was at that time. So everybody's watching Jesus, including Peter. And presumably Jesus has come to Capernaum because the Father told him to come to Capernaum. And I suppose part of why Jesus came was to find Peter. But instead of a rough-hewn fisherman, a man with torn-up hands and a sunburned face, maybe wind-blown hair, blistered lips, Jesus saw a man of vision. He saw a man of compassion. He saw a man who wanted something more. And so this fisherman was, in fact, a leader with ideals, a man who would be a perfect fit for Jesus' new society. Peter was a man who was a world changer at heart, who was somehow looking to give birth to his dreams, but he couldn't rise out of where he was trapped into what he was meant to be. And you could look at Peter and say, well, you know, he actually had a pretty good life. You told me already he's got a commercial-scale fishing business. He's, he's doing pretty well. His house that we know is his house, it's right there by the beach. He had white, white water views. I mean, you know, what could possibly be wrong? But the problem is that these are not the things that fulfill us. These are not the things that give us passion. These are not the things that give us meaning in our lives. You know, when the vineyard started up there, when Calvary started over there, both were just groups of young people. In fact, John Wimber used to say that the vineyard church was not much more than a large youth group, and many of its participants were probably a lot like Peter. We had a lot of blue-collar workers, and at one point, the John said the average age of the church was under 24. That makes this church actually older even than we were. But you know what we had? We, had, we were envisioned. God had given us something because, well, maybe not unlike Capernaum, in our own strange way, Jesus had come to visit. And so everybody's watching Jesus, and like I said, Capernaum was a small town. Everybody knows everybody. And so they've been watching this newcomer, and Peter in particular has been watching Jesus. He watched in curiosity as he'd set up his shop in Capernaum, and he'd watched him do some of his work, and maybe he'd even hired him to do some work in his own house. And he'd heard him preach in the synagogue, which, by the way, was just across the quadrangle, really, probably where you see that cannon sign on that building. It's closer than that building from the synagogue to Peter's house. And so he'd, he'd heard Jesus preach in the synagogue, and he, he handled himself well. He had a clear sense of God's presence. He knew the scripture. And he even 
he even maintained his composure when that, <clears throat> that crazy man had screamed out in the synagogue. And he seemed to have a particular obsession, almost a fixation with this thing, the kingdom of God, something the prophets had said about, spoken about long before, but which had never been fulfilled. Everything he said was kingdom. Everything he taught was the kingdom. Everything was parables to illustrate the kingdom. He, he, and then he demonstrated the kingdom. He didn't just talk about it. He actually did it. This, this Jesus had caught Peter's attention. And he didn't even know that there was something inside of him, a sleeping giant, if you will, until Jesus stirred that within him. And he felt something. He felt something he'd not felt for a long, long time probably since his own childhood. And little did he know that this carpenter from Nazareth who had relocated to his town was about to summon him onto a most improbable journey. And I want to say to you this morning that I think many of you sitting right here are like Peter. I think God is calling you on an improbable journey. I think some of you, not all of you, some, somebody's got to be the economy of the world, but some of you are going to leave your nets some of you are finding in your own life, you've, you've, been, you've been home for a year contemplating your navel. Maybe you've been contemplating the scripture. And in all of this, you've seen just how fleeting life is. Maybe you've had loved ones die due to COVID. I lost four friends to COVID, three of them in successively November, December, and January. So it hits kind of close to home when that occurs. Well, Going back to the vineyard, in the early years, as I said, most of us were young. Um, but we were, we were astounded at what God was doing among us. We were astounded at what God was doing through us. And it was a wild ride. And in those years, if you didn't get to church at least an hour early, you probably wouldn't even get a seat. That's kind of what it looks like when heaven comes down. And our hunger for God was great. And the things that the Lord did among us were... Well, they were astounding. I remember one woman that was in our congregation. She was born without ovaries. She was beautiful. She was 12 on a 10 scale of beauty. But, but she wouldn't date anybody because she knew she couldn't have children. And she figured no one's ever going to want to marry me. So she just remained unto herself. And one night we were in church and John, and we used to pull out the bleachers and People would sit in the bleachers for church. Some would sit on the floor in chairs. But anyway, one night John called out a word, and um, I was sitting very close to her with some of my friends, and we laid hands on her, and the power of God came on her. You, she looked like she'd been plugged into a 440 circuit. <laughs> I mean, she got lit up. All the sweat came through her clothes. I mean, she was, she was a wreck. But you know, today... She's a grandmother of eight. When that prayer time ended, she said, I feel fatter. God had literally created ovaries in her body. You know, I had a meeting like this in Pennsylvania about, uh, probably about seven years ago also, 
And there was somebody there who'd had their stomach removed for cancer. And the power god, the power god literally knocked this person off his feet and threw him backward. There was that much power on evidence in that meeting. And he hit the ground, boom, you know, and so he's getting lit up. Anyway, um, afterward he said, I feel fat. So he went to the doctor and God had created a new stomach where it had been removed. So I'm telling you these stories, the, the stories are fun and they're, they're energizing, but the stories are illustrations of the point. And this is the point. The kingdom of God is not a theory, it's a reality. And so Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. But you know, it didn't take long before the church began proclaiming the kingdom of the church. And so about 1,600 years ago, one of the greatest theologians in church history made a fatal mistake. And to this very day, 2021, he's counted as one of the greatest four theologians in the history of the church. His name was, well, it depends on how highbrow you are. It's either St. Augustine or St. Augustine. But whichever one you call him, that's the guy. And his mistake was teaching that the church is the kingdom of God. And with all due respect, if church as we know it today is the kingdom of heaven, then I'm disappointed. And I'm ready to hang up my spurs and go home. Jesus did not come proclaiming the church. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. And that shift in emphasis has hamstrung the advance of Christianity from that time until now. And Christianity ever since has emphasized church over kingdom. This is true. You just, if, you, if you have any theological education, you would know this. Over and over and over again, it goes on. In fact, in the year 251, St. Cyprian of Carthage said, in Latin, of course, extra ecclesiam nulla salus, which means outside the church, there is no salvation at all. And what I th hope he meant was that, you know, apart from Jesus, you can't be born again, but that wasn't it. By then, the Catholicism had started to emerge, and it was all about the church. And yet, Jesus had said of Pilate, said to Pilate at his trial, my kingdom is not of this world. So what is the difference between the church and the kingdom of heaven? The church is the agent of the kingdom. It is the earthly entity by which God's kingdom advances, just as an army or a navy does not exist for its own benefit, but instead represents a government and carries out its orders. This is what the church is to do. We exist for the benefit of advancing the kingdom of heaven. And just like when Jesus came into Galilee, from that time he began to say, change your minds, repent, get a new way of thinking, lay it down, the kingdom of heaven is breaking in upon you. And for those who had been living in the land of death, for those who got that new way of thinking, the lights came on and the light had shone. Now the scripture says that the woman or the man who walks with the Lord will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in due season, which means in and out of season, which means, by the way, for those of you that may be well in the autumn years of life, you could still be bearing fruit. It also means that if you're in the prime of life, you should be bearing a lot of fruit. And even if you don't think you're yet in the season of fruit bearing, God might summon you to bear fruit ahead of schedule. And I don't mean children. <coughs> Although children are a good thing. <laughs> Let's just keep our terms straight. 
But the point is, no matter what time of life you are in, you can bear fruit. And yet in our day, fruit has been dumbed down. It has come to meet a set of personality traits that can be collectively summed up as nice. Nice people don't rock the boat. Nice people aren't controversial. Nice people may be bland or even banal. Nice people don't change the world. Now, world changers may well be nice people, but they don't change the world by being nice. They don't view niceness as the way that we get things done. And so can we just all agree here now, today, right now, that we're going to stop trying to nice the world into salvation? I mean, I I try always to be nice. I try to be non-confrontational and non-combative, but I'm not going to sacrifice truth for niceness. And I I think the church has been pushed into a corner where we've been told we need to be nice and to shut up. But in fact, world changers, while they might be nice, they actually live out of a set of values that are aligned with the kingdom of God and which are, I would say, frequently juxtaposed to mainstream thinking. Back to my early comment, we are creating a counterculture. That's what God has called us to do. Back in the 1970s, which is a long time ago, there was a man named Ron Sider, and he wrote a book called Christian Counterculture. You can still find it. You might want to think about getting it and studying. It's still timely, and it it deals with many of the competencies and values and lifestyle issues that we're called to take on if we are going to become those people. Jesus also said this, so we've, we've got this psalm that talks about fruit. Jesus said this, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples, John 15, 8. So fruit bearing is something that becomes the, what do we want to say, hallmark or distinguishing feature of a true disciple. It's not optional. And we've already stipulated to the fact that when we say fruit, we don't mean nicing people around. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about fruit as Jesus bore it. And so we have to settle a question. Jesus said this in the upper room discourse. It's, it's the last night of his life. <clears throat> and he said this in the upper room. So was he saying it to the 12 or was he saying this for the benefit of the entire church? Well, it ought to be obvious it's for the whole church because it's in the Bible. If it were just for them, it probably wouldn't have made it into the Bible. But anyway, if he, if he was only speaking to the 12, then we can stop the sermon here and we can all just go home, just right now. Um, but... That's only true if nothing of what he said applies to us. But if what he said applies to the whole church, then it applies to everybody here. And so how would we know? Well, Jesus said these things in the context of the Holy Spirit. He said them in the context of the Holy Spirit who is given to the church, who breathes the church into existence, who summons men and women, boys and girls, to Jesus. The Holy Spirit who sanctifies us, empowers us, and ultimately glorifies us as we move into heaven. Without the Holy Spirit, none of this matters. The Holy Spirit then is more than an essence. He is the game changer. And so again, back to the revivals here, the wells here in Orange County, John Wimber used to say, can't we just let the Holy Spirit run the church? Instead of men, instead of committees, instead of our policies and procedures, can't we, can't we just do that? And that actually was one of the defining features that catalyzed, I might even say detonated, 
the work of God that came out of that canyon up there off Imperial Highway that affected the nations of the earth. Do you know today in England, there are only two kinds of Christians. There are Wimberized Christians and non-Wimberized Christians. Most of the Anglican church in England is dead, but those that are alive and that are thriving and that are planting new churches and that are having an impact on their society, every single one of them was Wimberized. And you can look at Europe, this is true in Germany, it's true in France, it's true in Italy, it's true in Spain, and we can go on and on. I'm not here to preach the gospel of John Wimber, but I am here to talk about the impact, the catalytic power of taking the wraps off on the Holy Spirit because the normal state of the Christian life is to bear fruit. It is not optional. Jesus said, this is how you will glorify my Father. You will bear much fruit. And so, in our time, many have treated fruit as though it's simply a series of personality traits, you know, niceness. Gentle, kind, patient, self-controlled. These are all good things. I, I, I support them and advocate for them. I try to practice them. My wife will tell you I'm slowly getting better at it. But somehow we've, we've tangled all of that up with the idea of actual fruit bearing. And if I, if I dare say it, fruit bearing is something that is catalytic. It's, it's, well, what they call in Silicon Valley, it's disruptive change. That's what fruit bearing really is about. That's why Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will be my witnesses. And you're gonna upend this entire Levant in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth. We're gonna, we're gonna drop it there and it's just gonna spread outward. And Jesus said that except we be connected to him, the vine, the sap can't flow. That's how we bear the fruit. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, by this is my Father glorified, then you will bear much fruit. So I started out by telling you two days ago was the 115th anniversary of the Azusa Street outpouring. And, you know, we're in a kind of an interesting season. This movie that I mentioned as I, as I started this morning, it was released in 2014, seven years ago. It was also seven years ago that the prophet Bob Jones went home to the Lord. And most people that know these things and follow them know he died on Valentine's Day of 2014, and a lot's been made of all that. But, you know, the thing that I want to point out about Bob and the time of his passing is that the Lord had promised him, not unlike Simeon of old, who dwelt in the temple awaiting the consolation of Israel, the Lord had promised Bob Jones that he would not die before he saw the new breed. Bob died seven years ago. Everyone sitting in this room is more than seven years old. That means there's a reasonably high probability that you are among the new breed. Just let that sink in for a moment. And there's a whole generation of people like that. And New Breed was just Bob Jones's way of describing a coming movement of people who would carry a passion for the kingdom, who would advance it effectively, and who would not compromise their values by their choices. That's what the New Breed means. Well, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's John 12, 24. 2014 and beyond, we're seven years beyond it, has been prophesied as a season of advance, reversal of bad fortune, revelation, blessing. It's been said that it's the year the billion soul harvest began. That was also what Bob Jones prophesied. 
Well, if there were going to be a billion soul harvest and America got its ratable share, that would mean approximately that the state of California and Florida, the populations of those two states collectively would come to faith. And I don't mean prodigals coming back. I'm talking new converts. So raise your sights. Understand what the game is here. We're, we're, we've been called to a very high calling and to a long game. But we have to ask ourselves, are we really ready for this? Because you see, when Jesus came walking along the beach and Peter's mending his nets, I already said, he's just keeping his head down. He's just kind of come along, get along. The Spirit's falling on this woman right here. Right here. Do you remember John Wimber? A little bit. All right. Something's happening. And something happened this week. It's like a bomb dropped up at H Rock Church. Up there. I, I called it an airstrike. I mean, something hit the building on the 9th of February, uh, Jan, April, whatever month we're in. <laughs> something like an airstrike hit the building. I mean, it was, I haven't seen anything like it in at least a decade. And it, as it happened, nobody ginned it up. It was certainly not concocted. Uh, but as it happened, it was the 115th anniversary of Azusa Street. There have been some other things that have been going on around the land, but again, I gotta, it's about time to land this thing, so I, I got to curtail the remarks I want to make. But I will just say this, you know, coming out of Azusa Street in 1908, so the, the Azusa Street revival started in 1906, so we're two years into the revival. In 1908, at the absolute height of the revival, the greatest outpouring that, was, that happened during that season in that livery stable in downtown Los Angeles in 1908, the leader of the Azusa Street Revivals, William Seymour, he prophesied that about 100 years from now there would come an even greater outpouring than has been seen here. About 100 years. It was approximate. And he talked about how it would go out to the nations and it would go around the world. Behind that, Smith Wigglesworth in 1923 said that in the latter years of the 20th century or the early years of the 21st century, there will be a global revival and it will be the last great outpouring before the coming of Jesus. Well, Jesus had given a word to Peter, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Peter, you're a pretty good fisherman, but all you really knew how to do is catch fish. So I'm going to speak your language. I'm going to tell you what I'm summoning you to in a way that you can relate to. You're used to catching. This is not like, let me take my fly rod and catch one at a time. Peter's a commercial fisherman. And Jesus is saying, you're a good fisherman, Peter, but I'm going to teach you how to do what you do at scale with human beings. That was the value proposition that Jesus made to him. He said, if you will follow me, I will teach you how to do that. And Peter's like, hot dang, I'm in, and he left his nets behind. Sometime after that, Jesus had taken Peter to a little prayer meeting. You might have heard of it. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. They climb up on the mountain with James and John, two of his business partners. They've all cashed it in for this thing that they're after. And they go up on top of the mountain, and while they're there, oh, Moses, oh, Elijah, and Jesus turns to white. What's that? It's not a racist comment. 
He's shining like the sun. They're seeing him in his pre-incarnate glory. And in that context, Jesus makes a statement. He says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And there's been a lot of debate about whether that meant that Peter was being called the first pope or not, and we could go into a big theological debate about it. There's been a lot of ink and blood shed over that one statement through the centuries. But what if what Jesus really meant was that on this rock, Mount Hermon, the one where he was transfigured and who he really was became known to them, he was establishing the church because it was at this location that three men confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. They'd had a fresh revelation. They'd had an, an impartation. The Caesarea Philippi revelation is that Jesus was, in fact, the promised Messiah, that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, and this shining one was the king. And the gates of hell, today we call them the seven mountains. Media, entertainment, business, etc., government, they will not prevail against the church. But we do have a fight on our hands. We are up against uneven odds, and the deck is stacked against us. But with God, all things are possible. And so if this is to be the season of advance that it has been prophesied to be, if something really was started seven years ago, you know, the scripture says these things start slow and then they seem to accelerate. So we've had our seven-year slow burn. I think we're into the season of acceleration now. If this is going to happen, then we have to have a new revelation of Jesus. Peter had known Jesus as a carpenter. He'd known him as a teacher. He'd watched him be a healer, but now he knew him as a king. And so in new seasons, it's not enough to run on old revelation. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would reveal all truth to us, and so the question is, are we ready to hear the truth? The voice of the Spirit is saying, I want my church back. And I also want my world back. And so the question is, do you hear the voice of the Spirit? Do you hear him calling? Do you hear him calling right now? Right now, in this moment. You might hear it in the tone of my voice. You might hear it in the words of my voice. You might hear it because God's putting visions in your mind or something is exploding in your own heart. There's many ways to hear the voice of God, but do you hear him calling you to follow him? Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey. But when he returns, he will be riding a white horse. White horses is what emperors ride. The nations of the world are in turmoil, including our own, as the tossing of the waves of the sea, and the master is calling. Come, follow me. Come, follow me. Or in my best, best British accent, come, follow me. <laughs> Maybe like Peter, you're asking, Master, what are we going to do? We are going to change the world with him. That's what we're going to do. Well, I'm about out of time here, but I'm, I'm going to, is it okay to, yeah. 
if you want to be invested in this mission that Jesus launched 20 centuries ago by the Sea of Galilee by calling Peter, if you heard him calling you today, I want you to stand where you are. I just have to, before we pray, this is, I'm, I'm out of sequence here, but I got to do this. Um, is there an Allison here? Allison? Where's Allison? Your Allison? Is there another Allison also? Anyone else? No more Allisons? We're out of Allisons? I got your name when I was out praying in the parking lot, and the Lord uh, showed me a dark-haired woman with a yellow top. So... <laughs> But um, I, I, had this, uh, I, I had this word for you. It's, it's a simple word. It's not lengthy. But um, you've been in a season. You've been in a narrow place, and it's like you've been stripped, and things have been taken away from you, and you've, you've, you, I can see your lips quivering. So you've been in a season of, of incredible reduction, and it's almost like you've come to the end of yourself, which is actually not a bad place to be, even though it's a hard place to be. And the Lord wants you to know that a season of visitation is upon you and the tides are turning. And fortune and favor are coming to you. And this is relational. It's also monetary. And I think there's a promotion coming for you at work on top of it. Maybe that's got something to do with the money. But so, Lord, we just bless Allison and we thank you for, um, that she was here today. And we thank you that your word is true. And we ask you, accelerate the word in her life and let it all come to pass for her. Let it all come to pass for her and let the sorrow flee away. The scripture that I got when I was praying for you was this, sorrow lasts but a moment, but joy comes in the morning. So Lord, we ask for the light to shine, for dawn to break. Let her be like one of those people living in Zebulun and Naphtali. In the land of the shadow of death, let the lights come on and give her the breakthrough and favor that she's been seeking. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. All right, well, let, it, let the word for Allison be a, a form of something for you. Let your own heart rise. I'm just going to pray for the Holy Spirit to fill you and to empower you for this thing because you've all stood to say, I'm going to follow you, Master. I'll just say a, a simple word of caution. This doesn't mean go quit your job tomorrow. It might lead to that. But don't just do that gratuitously. Make sure you're led if that's where you go. But follow him in whatever you're doing and be true to it. Okay, hold out your hands. Father, I thank you in Jesus' name for the gift of the Holy Spirit. He told us that when he came, we would be given power. And you have called us on an incredible journey. You have called us to go into the harvest fields of the world, and we understand that this is the season of harvest. And so, Father, I ask that you would release the power of God through this body of people. And that these people that are camped out on this well, this ancient well of, of the vineyard itself, not even knowing they were here, we ask you to fill them and give them the wherewithal to be the world changers that they are, and that this thing that was awakened in them today, their hearts leapt within them. There was something in the sound of my voice. There was something in the words that I chose. There was something in the visions you gave them. There was something in what you were putting in front of them, what was stirring within them. Lord, take that 
and use it as fuel to drive them forward. Lord, we understand that the days are dark. We understand that the odds are stacked against us, but with you, we will prevail. With you, we will prevail. With you, we will prevail. And we are reminded over and over in the scriptures that Israel was always outnumbered. And when they turned to you, they won, despite the odds. And so with that, we just ask you, let us be those people that you send and give us the victory. Under him, unto him, and with him. Hope you enjoyed this week's Sunday sermon. We pray you experience all God has for your life. Because the storms that rage on the